we will go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. This chapter unfolds the exceeding great love of God. And then he repeats the choice. And so this chapter apparently follows up on the wrong choice that the people would make. And it comes from the previous chapters. But then what a note of hope. What a wonderful opportunity God gives. Because he says, even when you make the wrong choice, and we have to add this, I can't see how we cannot add this in the context of Scripture, reading Revelation, reading Genesis and every book in between. And that is, even when one makes the wrong choice, we have to add this, provided it's not fatal. Because in First John, the Holy Spirit records through the Apostle John that if somebody sees a brother sinning, pray for that brother and God will forgive and restore, give life. And then he says, I don't pray that you, I don't teach or I don't tell you that you should pray for everything because there is a sin that leads to death. So, we have to always have the caution for ourselves and others in our evangelizing, in our talk with our Christian friends, whoever it is. Keep that sobriety. Keep that reality. And so, provided the person hasn't committed something that is fatal, that's all the more reason why not to stray from God even for a second. Because you never know how much that deceptive sin can pull somebody so quickly. By God's grace, each one of us are breathing. We're alive because we profited from God's grace. By His mercy, our hearing was open and we listened. And uh, we're in His presence now. But when a person or family or nation goes away from God, there's still hope unless they reach the point of no return. We spoke about that already. But God is so hopeful. He's such a God of love and hope that he says, you people that I handpicked, I chose you, I loved you, and I brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage. I brought you to this promised land. You gave me a very hard time, very hard time for 40 years in the wilderness. I wanted to wipe everybody out. But I ended up wiping out the old generation, sparing the young. And now the younger ones have to be taught how to fear God, what it means to pass over and all these feasts of the Lord, regulations, how to keep themselves right so they can be blessed. And God's intent is always to bless. So wanting to bless the people, he says, whether an individual or tribe, family, nation, goes away from me and they start feeling the sting of disobedience, sting of rebellion, the punishment. 
He said, there's hope. Just come back. Just turn back, turn around. God says, I can actually restore everything back to you. Whoever said the God of the Old Testament was angry and looking to punish people, it's a total fallacy. It's a heresy. It's satanic. But God is the greatest person. He's the greatest lover of our souls. So it's a hopeful chapter. So now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've said before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. He's saying you've gone away. And when you do, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. There are many people misinterpret this. They say, see, even when God got angry at Israel, there's hope and look, answer me this question, they say. Did Israel come back to its homeland? The answer, of course, is yes. And they say, well, that means that we can never go so far away that we can't be brought back. That's not true. We need to remember when God looks at Israel or family or generation, those entities are comprised of individuals. There are individuals that are fall, that will fall off like rotten fruit. Because God uses the same label and name such as Israel or family or generation and says, I've brought Jacob back. Do you know why? There are many Jacobites that didn't make it back. That's the truth. But this presented in such a way that people just gloss over and they hear the preaching and they think, well, Israel made it back to the land. Look, they're even here today. Who? Every single Israelite? No. The majority are not there. Not only today, not every Jew is in the land of Israel, the promised land, but down through the centuries and in the time of Moses and Joshua. Who made it back? In the time of Isaiah, time of Jeremiah, when Daniel saw the prophecy completed, the prophecy of Jeremiah from the Holy Spirit. Who made it back? Everybody? No. Many were killed, including some of the kings. So can we say, well, Israel made it back. So that's hope for me. Not so fast. Because there's a condition to be met. And who knows? Sin is so deceptive. It's so deadly, so scary. That the more somebody sins, the more self-deceived they become they don't even know the gravity of the situation that they're one second maybe a heartbeat away from hell and so those people who are who avail themselves of the grace hey I'm in bonds right now just like where in Babylon shouldn't be the case we need to wake up Ezra said Nehemiah said we need to repent they led the people in repentance. They wept. Ezekiel wept. Jeremiah wept. Daniel wept. 
they all wept because they responded to that grace. If they didn't weep, they would have perished. That weeping signified, in their cases, repentance. And so the people were stirred back to look where? To Jerusalem, to God, God's presence. And only the remnant made it back. There's always a remnant. God is presenting this chapter here, the truths, within this chapter that when you cry to me from the ends of the earth, from all the nations where I've scattered you because of your disobedience as a family of Jacob, those Jacobites, if you will, those Israelites who will return to me with their children, I will bless them. That's God's forgiveness. It's tremendous forgiveness. Verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. What's the key word there that makes the difference between blessing and curse? Life and death. Return. When you return. Now, how do you know when someone's returned? They've left something. There's a leaving and then there's a cleaving. When you forsake your sins, when you understand the reason I got here is not by chance, not because I can blame this one, that one. Right now I'm in bondage to sin because of my own fault. I'm willing to admit it. The moment we do that, God doesn't hammer us, but he will until we do that because it means life or death. But once we do that, we see his arms open wide. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. You can just feel his heart as he's speaking this and have compassion on you. Sometimes we hear about God saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. We can take it for granted and even if we say I don't take for granted, can still not have the full effect because we're used to hearing it, almost feeling entitled. God is an awesome God. He's a holy God. He can say, I'm going to love the people who get it on the first shot. That's it. That's my divine prerogative. And isn't it right? Should have listened the first time. He is the most loving person in the whole universe. He says, when you returned, in spite of the sins that got you into captivity, I will bring you back. When your heart turns to me, I will turn your body to walk toward me. And I will bring you back and have compassion on you. and Gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. He said, I did it. I'm the one who scattered you. I'm the one who allowed you to get disciplined and punished and feel that sense of despair. Because if I let you get away with it, that means you're not my children. I don't discipline you. I don't instruct you. I don't educate you. I just let you go. But because I love you, I'm going to let you feel some of the consequences, not all, thank God. Isn't it true? The Psalms is written. He has not rewarded us according to what? Our own sins, foolishness, iniquities. A place of humility like that, when we understand the scriptures, when we understand God's goodness, will keep us safe, sober. We will never be so flippant about the things of God and say, I'm not going to do what God said. I don't care what they said. That church over there, El Bethel International Ministries, I think they, they're demonic. How could you say that? 
Oh, yes, that church, EFBIM, Alberto International Ministries, meeting right there in the form church. I think they're demonic. How easily a person can become the mouthpiece of the devil. No wonder. The people called Jesus a demon-filled person. Who? The demon-filled people. When truth comes, it exposes lies. When the light comes, it makes manifest all that is darkness. And what happens to those who are comfortable in their easy chair, in their sins, in their own way? They become very hostile. All of a sudden, you can hear the hissing. But I thought this was a rather calm person. What happened? Well, the truth came. And then the devil showed up and became hostile. True colors came out. God comes to us to expose all the hidden works of darkness so that we have nothing to do with it because God has nothing to do with it. He wants to bless us. But you see, pride will kill the soul. Pride will make a person say, my opinion matters more than anybody else's. But what about the truth of God? Does your opinion matter more than the truth of God? Some of you might dare to say, what is truth? Like Pontius Pilate, the governor. What is truth? When truth is standing right in front of him. When God says, read the word of God, hear the word of God, obey the word of God. We say, been there, done that, and all about it. I can tell you the doctrines of this and that and church catechisms and some church history. All of that will take a person to hell if they don't have a heart like a child and say, Lord, teach me. I'm willing to empty myself. These people were full of themselves. They thought, we can have God and we can play too. God waited. He warned them and waited. Then they were cast away. Now, God in his compassion says, I don't want you to die. I know. You're there suffering. Now, think about it. 70 years of captivity. What is the likelihood that the whole 70 years would see everyone that came into captivity still alive to go back? By this time, the lifespan of a human being drastically dwindled. They no longer were living several hundred years. There were people who went into captivity, who didn't make it out. It could be that the Lord, in his foreknowledge and sovereignty, allowed those people who are older to die, but who died in faith because there was repentance. God knows. But it could also be there are people there who would not turn back to God and therefore they died there in captivity. We need the Spirit of God to help us to understand the different elements that are involved in God's judgment and people's responses. Otherwise, there's this blanket statement in preaching from the devil. Oh, where did Israel go? Well, they were scattered to the north, to the west, to the east, to the south, four corners of the globe. Why? Because they rebelled against their God. They started having these creeping images and unclean things. They were doing detestable things. They were killing their firstborn and secondborn and all the babies. Whenever the demons asked them, they just completely left the Lord and insulted him. Brought death upon themselves, captivity. Okay. And where did they go? 
well, the northern part went to Assyria and the southern part went to Babylon and is was Israel doomed then? No, they came back. How long after? About 70 years in that second captivity. There you have it. You can never outrun the grace of God. You can never outdo. He'll be back. No, there were people who perished. So it's important not to look at these things in a superficial way, make assumptions to fit and make a self-convenient give us convenience in our sins and rebellion. God is speaking to the people who are remnant. Anybody's eligible to be among the remnant. Anyone. You can have a whole family who decides to be prejudiced. Whole family. From the oldest to the youngest. Prejudiced against certain people, certain races, certain uh, social classes. Certain organizations against certain governments. The light comes to one of them and one of them decides to respond. I'm going against the herd. I'm going against the grain. This is wrong. If somebody comes to you, in fact, maybe 12 people in the family comes to that person who said this is wrong and says, what did you say? You're a disgrace to our family, to our country. You're going to basically say that all of us are wrong? Who are you? We're going to kick you out. We'll disown you. That person becomes a remnant because they stand for righteousness. The remnant are those who fear the Lord. They were not fearing the Lord. They were just like the others. All of a sudden they said, I can't do this anymore. I cannot deny God's truth anymore. Those are the people God is addressing here. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I commanded today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. He said, I will reach out as far as far as you have gone away from me. The moment you turn your heart toward me and you're truly penitent or sorry for your sins. Truly sorry, which implies repentance. Not like Pharaoh, as we read recently. When he said, this time I've sinned against the Lord. Will you please entreat the Lord for me? I need some forgiveness here. I need relief from these hailstones on my head, from these frogs and all this stuff. No repentance. Then another time he said, just one more time, please. Pray to your Lord. I really blew it this time. God said, this man is lying through his teeth. That's why he's going to end up the way I said he would. Even Moses said, don't lie to me this time. Well, when a person has repentance and they turn to God, even if they're in the furthest corners of the earth under heaven, God says, not only are my eyes upon you, waiting for you to turn, come back to your senses, because I want to draw you back with cords of love to bless you. I want you back in my home, but you got to leave the devil's place. For there the Lord you got, from there the Lord you got will gather you, and from there he will bring you. 
Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, where you got kicked out from. I'll bring you back and you shall possess it. You get it again. He will prosper you. Notice this. This is very amazing when I read it yesterday. He will, pro- not only a restoration, but there's a promotion with that. There's an increase. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. You talk about grace. How many of us have a hard time being gracious to other people? We think, well, that's all I'm going to do for you. Take it or leave it. You better be happy that I did that for you. Imagine if God treated us that way. We have to get rid of the arrogance and pride. If it's knocking at our doors and saying, own me. Say, no. God expects me to do what? Go twice the distance. I'm compelled to go one mile, go twice. To extend grace is to love from the heart, not to see whether they're appreciative, they're going to thank me, and they better be happy with it. But I really want them to be blessed, and I want them to enjoy. I want them to prosper. And I'm doing it because... Not only because it's the right thing to do in the sight of God, but because I have God's Spirit in me. That's the nature of God, if I'm a believer. Not very exacting, you know. You you lent me $20. Here's your money back. Oops, I gave you $20.05. Can you give me the nickel back? To be so exacting in our Dealings with people, and that's just an example in general for forgiveness that we shall are supposed to give to people. That there's a careful tallying of other people's mistakes, a very careful record bookkeeping of how I should look good and I should make sure I don't lose anything with regards to what people owe me. Instead of having the freedom that my father's eyes are upon me, I can never get shortchanged ultimately. Do you believe that? It's when we don't believe that that we get heated up and argue and begin to fight for our rights. But when we really trust God, that he's a faithful father, he sees. When somebody does us wrong or we suffer for doing right, he will reward us. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your father's. This is another amazing statement I read again recently. Circumcision is such a tremendous deal was in the Jewish faith and still today to those people who haven't been uh, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, sometimes people point to Jeremiah or Ezekiel who came, of course, centuries after this. This is right here during the time of the very person God used to give the law, Moses. So, almost right at the beginning, we can say, of the era of the Mosaic law, God says that circumcision that I gave to Abraham, that I gave to Abraham, that became a law to the people of Abraham, that became a nation, to signify their covenant with me, Right here he gives a very 
great clue that eventually it's going to be meaningless. The Apostle Paul says that later by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, neither circumcision profits anything, avails anything, nor uncircumcision. But what? Faith that works by love. And way back in Deuteronomy, God says, the kind of circumcision I'm really looking for is not some external ritual. It's symbolic of something deeper that is in the heart. To do what? Get rid of that which is filth. Get into a covenant with God. Get into a covenant with the Almighty God to love Him and to do only what He says. It's faith that works by love. And again, He says, it's faith which is shown by what? Keeping the commandments of God. And that's what matters. Keeping the commandments of God. Which is equivalent to having genuine faith that works by love. So this chapter that we may see in a series of chapters in Deuteronomy, oh, I know that. I've heard that preached so many times here at the church in our meetings, blessings and cursings, blessings and cursings. It can just become kind of, uh, you know, something that tugs at our heart. But look at the different things God expresses over here. He actually gives them that good doctrine. He explains what it's really all about. This whole thing about church and whole thing about Christianity and about reading the Bible. What is it about? What does it come down to? It comes down to loving my God with all my heart, soul, and strength. He's a loving God. He's a faithful God. And anything that I do externally, it has no meaning whatsoever if there's no internal correspondence in the heart with this sincerity, with this genuine desire to do God's will. He says, and the Lord their God will circumcise your heart. This is another remarkable thing. It just struck me as I read that in a stronger way than ever before. He's making a promise over here. God is not just saying, you turn and you don't burn, but I'm going to draw you back to where you left. But it's not like a kid who's received back into the classroom by a harsh teacher who grumbles and looks at him with the glasses down halfway and all the kids look and there's that kid, the one that got punished, he's coming back. And he comes back in shame. God is presenting a picture that foreshadows the parable of the prodigal son and the father way back in Deuteronomy. He's the one. He said, the moment you turn, I'll not only welcome you back, my intention is to bless you more than your fathers. How great God is. And furthermore, he explains to them the circumcision's meaning that I'm looking for the heart. He gets even more explicit in the prophets. And he says, remove the foreskin of your heart, the callousness that's there. The filth. And he goes further and he says, 
the Lord your God, God, the I am, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. No wonder sometimes for some Christians, we can't understand, we can't comprehend. How did this person get to be so on fire for God when they're a Johnny come lately or they just got restored after a, a long time away from God? And how come myself, who didn't go so far from God, at least externally, don't feel that same eagerness to love God, to serve Him, and uh, have the excitement for the revelation of God every single time. I don't want to miss a thing. Not out of curiosity, not just out of wanting to know it all and climb up a ladder, but because I love God and His Word is like the dew that drops down on the mountainside. It's a fresh, it's a treasure for me. Every single time. So God says, just like we may wonder how certain people are on fire, more than others. You know what? Just like a person that is rebelling against God, God said, if they continue to insult my grace and curse me to my face and rebel, the wicked people. Just like he said, I will make sure I put them on the slippery slope. Pharaoh hardens his heart. I'm going to help him along in what he already decided. He's not changing. I already see it. God knows everything. Similarly, when a person turns to God, he's so gracious. He actually infuses the grace necessary to accelerate in spiritual growth. How awesome. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. All because I just turned back to God, humble myself. Said, Lord, I'm a big zero. Lord, I don't know anything. I acted. I pretended, Lord. I thought I was happy. I thought I was doing ministry. I thought I was doing all these things. And I thought I knew it all. And I thought I was studying more. And all of it was still a nervous wrangling about trying to do what? Be somebody and be noticed? Or to satisfy me? No wonder I'm so empty and frustrated at the end of the day. The Lord... The breath that you put in me, I want to use it to love you by praising you and doing what you say. When a person turns like that, God says, I will cause you and your children to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Because he said, I will do the circumcision of the heart. Man cannot do that. God can. So this is not just the people who don't know Christ as a parallel to our Christian era. These are people who knew the Lord very well. They saw the Shekinah glory of God. They saw the cloud by day and the fire by night. They saw the miracles. They saw awesome wonders that no nation has ever seen. They saw it all still chose 
so wicked. God could have said, now that I've driven you out, your history, bye-bye. His eyes, his heart, still looking for repentance. Is there a chance? There is. For those who would take that grace and make use of it. So for those people, he says, I have a lot more. So much more. Why did you go away? You hurt yourself. And you almost got killed. You've gone to hell. Separated from me forever. I can't do anything after that. But now that you're coming back to your senses, he says, come back. Who? To the Christian. The one who really knew God. He says, when you do, not only do I have open arms, I have things for you to accelerate your growth. And this just overwhelms me when I see how the Lord communicates and what he does communicate. He goes further. He says, I'm going to give you satisfaction. You come back to me. It's for your own good because I love you. I'm doing I don't need you. I love you so much that when you return to me, I'll also let your eyes see the defeat of your enemies. Verse 7, Deuteronomy 37, verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 7. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. He said, I'll lift you up again. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Verse 8, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. Verse 9, the Lord your God will make you abound, prosper in the work, all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in your offspring, your children, in your business, what you have to do, in the produce of your land for good, and for those who may say, well, I'm taking a hit right now. I'm following the Lord, but it doesn't seem to be working out now. I'm against the odds and things are looking upside down. God will reverse it because God doesn't lie. He said, I'll make you the head and not the tail. You'll be above and not beneath. You'll be lenders and not borrowers. God means what he says. He says what he means. He will keep his promise. So we have to hold fast and persevere. There's that time which God will look for that faith. To see if we really believe and really love and really trust him. And then the exhortation will come. For the Lord God will again be appeased. He'll calm down with all the evil you did. Is that what it says? The Lord your God will again put you back over there where you belong in the assembly line, in the factory line. You'll be in the chain. You've been the flow, but just one among many and forgotten number. At least you're here. Be happy. Here, there's your food and there's your water. Be happy you're back here, not slaughter somewhere else. I have other things to do. Is that how God is? For the Lord will again rejoice. Rejoice over you for good as rejoiced over your fathers. If there's that word, two-letter word. What an exercise, brothers and sisters, family of God, 
And as much as we did the essay and the LTS on the article and those who are not in life training school read the article. And of course, it's not original with me as far as the content. It's the scriptures, plain scriptures. It's the true doctrine. But as we saw in their article, this two-letter word, what if? What if we went through the Bible and underlined every single place where this word is used? A word of conditionality. What a difference it will make in our lives. Truly, it will. Because we'll be seeing perhaps for the first time and more clearly than ever before the two-pronged fork in the road. At every juncture, every command, every move of God, the clear choice of only one or two paths. Either do what he says or don't do what he says. That's all. And the thing that will turn that pivot, so to speak, toward either direction is our comprehension and caution with this little word, if. So, he has spoken so lovingly so wonderfully, so endearingly. What a wonderful Lord God we have. Never changes, always the same. With all the good things he just spoke, he said, I bless you more than your fathers. You and your children will begin to love the Lord. I'll circumcise your heart so that you can do that. And I will make you see your enemies defeated before you. I'll exalt you. I'll give you everything. You'll be so happy if, if, You obey the voice of the Lord your God. To keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, for us is the whole Bible. And if you turn to the Lord your God, if, again, with all your heart, with all your soul. But didn't he just say, you back up a few verses there, didn't he just say, and the Lord your God, verse 6, somebody's scratching their head, what does this all mean? He says he'll do it, then he says you do it, then he says you do it, then I'll do it. Verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise, he'll do it. Circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. What it clearly means is, God will present all the grace to make the right choice. So we can clearly do it. Every human being can do it. And when we do that, he will solidify that and accelerate that and complete that, perfect it. But if we choose to disobey, we're reckless and we're rebellious and we're self-opinionated and haughty, despise God and the things of God in a, a very obvious revival in front of eyes in our family, in the church. Just say, who cares? I don't care. I'm sitting here doing my own thing. It's about me, myself, and I. I'm the king of the castle or the queen of the castle and I'll do whatever I want. If a person takes such an approach, God will help them along in their choice, like he did with Pharaoh. And there will be a point in which there will come a Red Sea that will separate the children of faith from the children who don't believe, the children of light and children of darkness. It's a dreadful thing to try to play God and play with God. But if we understand the significance and strength of this word if 
And we see, it's just a matter of my choice. Don't we decide when we're sick, we don't feel like it, we have to go and make that money? Why? I don't want to get kicked out of my apartment, go back to where I came from, or lose this and lose that. People have various reasons, not just that. And so what do they do? They overcome whatever they have to to make that dollar. They make choices. And they make choices against what? All the opposition that comes their way. But when it comes to God, oh, I love God. He loves me. We love God. And I'm doing my own thing. I'm still working. Some people think that as long as you got a job, you're okay in my book. Not by God's book. God doesn't encourage laziness or any such thing. But he does say a person's heart needs to surrender to God. And then whatever we do will be blessed. Otherwise, the very things will become a curse to us. Because what it does is it fuels delusion. Because most people, when they have what they want, they feel they don't need God. But when they begin to lose things and they understand they don't have control over their life in the situation, for a lot of people, that's when they actually search for God. So having prosperity and comfort, that's why we should pray for our relatives. Not that, Lord, keep them healthy and live long and bless them and give them those kind of blessings and prayers their way only. We should desire the best. And we should forgive. And we should not desire harm for even people who don't agree with the truth and even family who are hostile and want to disown us. God says love, but we should at the same time pray, Lord, make them miserable, whatever it takes, Lord. It's not a contradiction, it's complementary. Both prayers. God will show when to pray what and how. But the main thrust of it is, Lord, whatever it takes, May they turn to you. They have to hit rock bottom, so be it. They have to lose everything, Lord. I'm going to be praying secretly that through this, at least this time, may they surrender their knees, bow their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ and really start to lift. Verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you. Look at all the length to which God speaks. He says, this is what you have to do. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is what is going to happen. And I want to tell you, it's not hard. It's not a mystery. It's very simple. I told you, don't steal. Don't steal. I told you, don't kill. Don't kill. I told you, don't hate. Forgive. Do it. Forgive. I told you, don't hold grudges against your spouses or your children or your grandchildren and nephews and nieces and vice versa. Don't do it. Make the choice. Follow through. Don't go by motion. Go by the word of God. And I will help you. It'll become easier and easier. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not obscure. It's not something that is Shrouded somewhere and you have to 
scratch your head and scratch the surface of that thing. And what does God mean? Imagine discovering a Bible and some hieroglyphics, some Egyptian language or Akkadian language, some ancient language. And we have to decipher it and pay a lot of money for people to translate it and scour the earth for people who are Egyptologists and all these different Assyriologists. People who can understand ancient languages and what does it mean? And we come away with one sentence. We think, well, I, I understood one sentence from heaven today. We have some 1,189 chapters, some 30,000 plus verses, sentences from heaven. God says, it's not hidden from you. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. God says in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 30, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over, over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. How much money would you pay to get those season tickets to see the Knicks? Especially if it's a championship game. Of course, people who love the sport and love the team, it becomes very valuable to them and they will work overtime and double time and triple time. I've seen people like that. I've worked with people like that. Because it's important. And then their family also comes with the pinstripes that they're watching the Yankees and the jerseys. And hey, it's an event. Okay. It's valuable to you. You work for it. Enjoy it. It's a family thing. What about treasure from heaven? Something that will actually last for eternity. What price will we pay? Imagine if somebody would auction off a scroll, which is a translation and a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy from the very first authentic, what they call autograph copy of the prophet Jeremiah. What do you got there? I have a copy of the entire book of Jeremiah. Can you believe it? I've got it. And I'm the only one in the Northern Hemisphere that has it. The only one. And it took a team to go to the North Pole. And I had to get all kinds of cartographers and all these people that study the map and geography and the weather. And they had to dress in a certain way. And I had to pay them $2 million. Can you believe it? 50000 for this one to go from point A to point B. The other one to get it for me and transport it and but I got it. It took a whole nine months, but I've got it right here in my living room. I have a copy of only five copies in the whole world of the book of Jeremiah. Out of thousands down the years. It cost me two million dollars. God is trying to make us understand how valuable it is when he speaks to us. In his word, he loves us so much. He's saying, wake up. Don't let the devil lie to you and steal my word from you. Shut down everything else and put down everything else. Come sit at my feet. I have treasure for you. You're precious to me. I'm doing things for you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to bring you to me. You're going to reign with me. I'm preparing you. You're my child. Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us? That we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very 
near you. It's exactly where the Apostle Paul got it from in Romans 10. Romans 10, 9, 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right before that, he quotes Deuteronomy 30, 14. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. You have full access to the grace and the word to do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. There's no middle ground. Every video game that you see out there that your kids play, every video game, or you played or play, every one of them, it's either from life and good, from light, or it's from death and evil and darkness. There's no neutral ground. Somebody says, I don't believe that. What do you mean? It's just football. Some of the games have certain rewards when you win the game. They have certain elements that come in there. They're clearly not good. There are certain statements that they put in the mouths of those characters. So many things that we may take for granted. And as a believer, a pilgrim and a stranger in the world, as a foreigner to this world, having been born again from above, Why not glorify God? Why not seek out things that glorify God? Some things are overtly bad, blatantly, from the surface level. Others, what they'll do is they'll weaken our resolve. They'll make us more sports-minded or more whatever-minded through this media and through this game. We can be a living mummy. All dressed up in a coffin of our own making. Zombies walking around, dead on the inside. Or we can say, my God, this is foolishness. I wasn't created just to be someone who consumes food and goes to work and comes back and relaxes and then do it all over again after sleeping. Created the image of God. I'm here for a purpose. I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, shut that off. I don't want to hear that anymore, God. And are drawn away. Who does the drawing away? The devil. He said, that's good. Keep it up. Keep it up. Get angry. Reject the voice of God. Do your own thing. Now you're getting it. Keep doing it. And he brings in the chain that's around our necks. Drawn by the demonic spirit. 
and you go worship other gods and serve them? Somebody says, Pastor, I don't have an idol in the house. You can go through every room in my house. You're not going to find a totem pole. You're not going to find a statue of Buddha. You're not going to find a, anything referring to Islam or Hinduism or anything. No idols in this house. I don't believe in idols. I think they're demonic. It doesn't make any sense having carved images and stones and paintings and bowed down before them. But uh, things that consume our time, if they're not relevant to our calling that is from heaven, they can very well be idols. Because we're doing service. What do people do when they worship? First of all, they give their time. There's been a lot of time that they go to worship whatever they worship. Secondly, they express themselves in ways that they think that that supposed deity or idol is going to be happy with. They try to appease that one. Satisfy that one's wrath or displeasure or make that thing happy. What do they do? Sometimes they bring rice and garland and flowers and money. They have rituals and processions. All in a hope that as they worship, quote unquote, this thing, they're making some kind of progress somewhere or getting good luck. So an idol can be anything that draws our attention and our love, our affection, our time, our energy, our money, and it has nothing to do with it. Truly, before I embark on certain activities, say, Lord, this is for your glory. I'm going to do this for your glory. Hours on this thing for your glory or this thing. No. Clear idol. Something has drawn away the person's heart from God. I announce you to I announce to you today, if you do that, you'll surely perish. I love you, I'm making all these promises, but I'm announcing right now. You do this and you will die. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So the effect on the descendants is hereditary here. Unless the descendants choose to oppose that, either for good or bad. In other words, if the father or the mother are reckless, and they don't care about God, and they do their own thing, and they even worship their own way, totally contrary to what the Lord says. The children are going to inherit those, those problems. That's going to affect the children, because they're coming from them. Unless, as we mentioned earlier, one of the children, or all of them, stand up and say, this is wrong. I love my mom and dad, but this is wrong. This is wrong. We're supposed to fear God and love Him and serve Him. We can't be wasting time and worshiping other things. 
I'm done serving money, materialism, and the good life, quote-unquote, trying to impress other people and feel good about myself because why? Now I have money. Now I have a car or this car or that house. Or now I belong to this organization. I got this card and that card. How sad. We fall into this trap until we're pulled out by God opening our eyes to see it's all vanity. Whatever is given to me is supposed to be used for God's glory, for the good of others, and then a blessing to me. But that order is messed up. Then we have tragedy waiting for us. Always. So with all that he says, he says, I'm announcing today, this is what will happen. Even if you go over and get the blessing back, you cried, you repented, I brought you back, but you start doing this over again, you're going to have problems again. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's what I want. I want you and your children to live, really live, not just physically, but the abundant life. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So, again, this is in those series of chapters. The culmination of it. Where God says in the outlines are the covenant, the second giving of the law, so to speak, Deuteronomy. To remind the people and prepare the new generation. What the standard of behavior is before God. What he expects of you. To renew their understanding and prepare them. Don't think because you're being blessed that there's no responsibility. God is watching. If you don't keep your part of the covenant, God will dismiss you and allow you to be destroyed. And notice in the chapter right before that, how God says his anger will be riled up. And I had this highlighted from, I don't know when. I just read this portion from Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood and so that it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober how direct that is. God says, people are hearing me speaking the truth. The warnings are saying, oh, whatever. I know, I know. Blessings and curses and curses and blessings. And, oh, it's kind of hard to hear. And what a tragedy. Those people over there who are being cursed. What's wrong with them? Me, I'm blessed. I'm blessed beyond a curse. I'm too blessed to be stressed. 
God says, that person really has bitterness. They have all kinds of things wrong in their hearts. But they're blessing themselves in their own hearts saying, I'll have peace. Even though I do what I want. He said, that's like taking a drunkard person and uh, standing him on the line right next to a sober person and say, look, they're the same officer. I don't see any difference. One man can one man can walk that line with no problem, perfect balance. The other man's all over the place in left field somewhere. Dribbling something and drooling over something and all disheveled and they're the same officer. And if you're gonna arrest that poor drunkard, you better arrest that sober guy, because to me they're all equal. God says how absurd. The Lord would not spare him. For then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in his book would settle on him. And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. Wow. Who said this? Jesus. He doesn't change. And the Lord would separate him. From all the tribes of Israel for adversity. He said, I'm going to rain down pain on you. Because you played. You pretended when you're with the group. You wouldn't separate yourself from evil. But you want to stay in the group. You thought you're doing good secretly. Praising yourself and blessing yourself with peace. Claiming all the promise of God when you weren't obeying. Now, I'm going to separate you publicly. The Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book, this book of the law. So that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown. Nobody's planting there. Nor does it bear. No crops coming up. Nor does any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Adma and Zeboi. Which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All nations would say. Why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then people would say. Because they have forsaken. They abandoned They rejected the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. God doesn't give any gods. He is God and God alone. Then the anger, he's saying it doesn't come from God. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land. People will say, this is why it happened. God was faithful, but these people were not. And he got angry. It's only right to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord, uh, well, we're observing this. Now we understand. He uprooted them from their land in anger and wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. 
that we may do all the words of this law. And then we see a few verses down in chapter 30. God says, it's not mysterious. What I'm telling you today is not no mystery. It's there for you. In plain Hebrew, as it was in the beginning. And for us in plain English. In black and white, as they say. So I see a tremendous motivation that God seeks to impart. Not simply by instruction, but by providing grace with the instruction to do the right thing. And I see that when you make a decision to do the wrong thing and a person doesn't change, even if they're warned, God keeps extending mercy, that God will eventually put them on the slippery slope. They go down, never to recover. That's the truth. But I also see that for the one who says, I've got to do this, just like I go to work or I do this and that against what I feel and even what other people tell me, I do certain things to do what? To take care of that great trinity of me, myself and I. I look out for number one. Nobody can stop me. No obstacle can stop me. I believe in me. I believe the greatest love in all the world is loving yourself. I'll continue to worship me. Nobody can stop me. With that kind of motivation... If a person channels that to do the will of God and love God, which is the right thing to do, to have God as God, not play God ourselves, God says, I will strengthen you and give you more grace to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So there's a impartation and a responsibility that God obligates himself to out of his exceedingly generous and good heart, loving heart, that my children that fear me and come near me, I will lift them up as on eagle's wings. I'll just elevate them by grace. They'll get closer to me than ever and stronger and stronger. No wonder the Bible says elsewhere that the righteous will shine, the just will shine more and more unto the perfect day. There's a perfection. He who began a good work in you shall perfect it and complete it, seal it until the day of Jesus Christ. For who? The ones who continually are in the word, continually praying and say, Lord, I love you. There's no one like you. I can't be where I am, Lord, unless you had done this. I know that, Lord, and I'm humbled and I have a responsibility not to forget about it tonight or tomorrow morning. That, Lord, any amusement I engage in and anything that makes me happy, any blessing, I don't get lost in it, Lord, to the point of foolishness and silliness where I begin to forget God and think I did it and begin to flaunt it. It's a dangerous thing. We need to keep ourselves in check and say, don't do like other people. Take the blessing and run. Cleave to the blessing and be humble. Give them the glory, the thanksgiving. And be willing to share and help people according to the will of God with whatever he gives us. Praise be to God. This has implications for our spiritual desires concerning spiritual gifts as well as material things that we need from God. God says, ask me. Anything you ask me, I'll give you if you ask according to my will. If you keep my commandments. And whatever he gives us, God will be able to trust us that we're not going to run away with it, make ourselves a name and try to be a veritable Tower of Babel all by ourselves. 
rather continue to see, Lord, it's a thrill for me to lay down my life, to think about others and give them hope and seek their welfare above my own. It's a great thing to be schooled by the Lord, to learn how to really pray and sweat and blood and tears, to really pray for others and for ourselves to be right with God and to glorify God. Praise be to God. I trust the Lord has spoken to all of you as he did to me. There's so many things God expresses here. We really get to see his heart. We get to see what we're supposed to do so that we remain on his good side and that we enjoy everything he does for us. And we have the guarantee that he will. He will strengthen us in our seeking of him. That's what you call supernatural, superabundant, miraculous promise straight from the heart of our loving Heavenly Father. Glory be to God. I believe Esther was going to come with a word also. If she's done taking care of Esther. But if anybody would like to pray,